Hey everybody, this is Pork and Brenda of Nightwatch Games. Welcome to the Nightwatch Games podcast. This is the second episode of season one and where we explore the question, why do we play games? In episode two, we are actually exploring the games. Why do we play the specific games we do? What we've done is assemble some of the experts in their respective field of their gameplay. So starting with my left, please introduce yourself. Hi, I'm Josh Hunter. I've been playing games since I was a teenager with Magic the Gathering uh, and my uh, nephews had introduced me to Warhammer Fantasy. I don't even remember what edition it was at this point. I am locally, I'm the Monster Apocalypse guy. Uh, I run a weekly Monster Apocalypse night uh, here at Nightwatch and run demos and just answer questions for people as they come up. Um, my name is David Lauber. I am... I guess the Dresden guy is what I'm known for. And I run about three sessions of Dresden at Nightwatch. What is Dresden? Oh, sorry. That's a great question. Uh, Dresden is a fate fate system, which is made by Evil Hat. And it's based in the universe of the Dresden Files, which is written by Jim Butcher, which is a 15-book series, soon to be 16, knock on wood. And um, I've been playing games for 20 years with a huge hiatus in the middle. And I just returned back to it. It was lost, right? It just sucked you in? It, yeah. The TV show? It and was, then after no, that? No, it was this store that sucked me back. <laughs> the Hi, my name's Gus Inger. I've uh, been gaming most of my life, so a couple of decades. And uh, I started gaming at four years old when my dad thought it was a good idea to beat up on me in chess. But fortunately, those skills have uh, proved useful later in life um, as I got interested in poker as a child, just with the randomness and probability and then into magic. And that is a gateway drug for a lot of people. Were you the um, kid that made money off your classmates? Oh, yeah. Playing yeah, poker? That won a lot of, uh, you know, candy bars and lunch money, uh, you know, teaching kids uh, blackjack, et cetera, in elementary school. But since then, my the game I have settled on nowadays is Guild Ball, which is a medieval fantasy soccer skirmish game from Steamforged Games. And a skirmish game different from a war game being that you only have six models, so you better make everyone count. All right, so those three people are definitely experts in their field. Uh, one of the things that Josh Hunter brings to the table are some of the best painted miniatures that I think we've seen here at the store. Uh, they're very large, monstrous creatures that are battling over the landscape of New York? Is it New York that they're fighting over? or any? It's, it's just an indeterminate city. You set the city up, there's buildings in it, but don't talk to the city planner because you've got, you know, maybe a volcano next to <laughs> a, a gas station or, uh, you know, the Statue of Liberty is there three or four times. Uh, don't, don't think about it too much. What kind of monsters are we talking about? Copyright adjacent versions of a lot of different kinds of kaiju that you might be familiar with, like King Kong or Godzilla. I think probably one of the things that is the most attractive about the game that makes it something that I can't really find too many other places in an effective way is I get to let Mecha Godzilla body slam King Kong into the Statue of Liberty and the game rewards me for it. <laughs> All right. Yep. That's a good selling point. So this isn't Tokyo. It seems like maybe Tokyo would be the default setting for this kind of combat. The cities that are in it are just as copyright adjacent as the monsters might happen to be. It's supposed to take place in a sort of alternate future, near future, real Earth. It Uh, opens up design space for sure. Yeah. And they had, at least at, at some of the conventions they were running, 
different kinds of campaigns where they're fighting on a map. Here's the map of America and, you know, we're fighting over Chicago and fighting over uh, St. Louis and things like that. And so that was kind of a, an interesting way they, they've taken it. But as far as the actual lore of it, each individual map is just a map. It's not necessarily any city. It, okay. Or, so to contrast that open amalgamous world there, I want to contrast it with a somewhat specific setting of Dresden. David, if you could tell us what's the setting of the Dresden Files game? Oh, that's a, that's a great question. It's actually the world built in the Jim Butcher books. Now, it, like D&D could be set anywhere in uh, high fantasy uh, the Dresden Files are set in a city that you build with your characters. So I've had a campaign in Chicago, modern-day San Antonio, Dublin, and we just had one in Melbourne, Australia. All right. So this is also an amalgamous kind of right. cityscape. We actually pull up the Google Maps and play on that. I have destroyed Chicago and taken down the Sears Tower in one of my campaigns. All right. Why is Chicago getting such a bad rap today? Well, <laughs> Chicago is because that's where Harry Dresden is from. That's where I the book see. is set. And so we started there two and a half years ago. And then when I gave given every character in that campaign PTSD, <laughs> they retired them all and we moved to another city. Yeah. Wasn't Pork, in fact, designed to be one of the villains in oh. your RPG? Uh, Pork was not. His first name was used. <laughs> Pork is a wonderful human being that I love and adore. Um, but we asked, you know, we, we, we approached you guys and said, hey, would you mind if we use your names? Because they're unique. And so there was also a Brenda in that game. There was. Oh, right. yeah. The hideous um, Brenda monster. Right. Uh, he was the head of the Grunwaka, which is the, 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 the green guard, which was... Um, these agents of a dragon in San Antonio. He had Hexenhuns, which were these forced shapeshifters into these giant, giant demonic beasts. He was a master of the hounds. Sounds very grim fairy tale. Yeah, very much so. Very much mm -hmm. so. It's it's an urban fantasy environment. So it's it's everything that you can think of. But if Harry Potter grew up and moved to Chicago and became a detective. I, I sort of see a correlation between the Dresden Files and Monster Apocalypse. I think you could probably look at the landscape as Josh has laid it out and saying, what's the big monster of the week? And right. then get that going. So you could be the skirmish game of his role-playing game. I don't know how much of a chance they would stand against, you know, 60 meter tall uh, monsters rampaging around laser breath and that sort of thing. There is there's rumors that one of David's characters has punched Loki, the god in the face. So that, that might... happened in Chicago <laughs> and he did no damage whatsoever. OK, but he he rolled a 13 on a scale of negative two to eight. That's quantum math for you. And, okay. All right. And things like that. So when eight is legendary and you roll a 13. You're dropkicking Loki. All right. So we have two very amalgamous settings there for their games. Let's contrast that with the world of Guild Ball. I'd be happy to. So it is a, a singular fiction. Uh, it's the Empire of the Free Cities. And in the setting, there were centuries of war that ravaged the land and destroyed all of the country's governments. And so uh, mercantile guilds were the only things that survived it. And thus, the entire world's government is now run by uh, different factions of tradesmen and women. Uh, for example, you have the Butcher's Guild and the Brewer's Guild and the Mason's Guild. And you even have the Union of Mercenaries. The uh, fluff, as you may call it, uh, the fiction of the game is not necessarily reflected in the gameplay, uh, but it's uh, certainly a rich story if you're interested in the background of all the characters. 
Would you be able to compartmentalize what is the thing or things about your game of choice that brings you to the table? I feel like nostalgia brought me here. It's partially nostalgia for kaiju movie genre, but I've really not seen that many old kaiju movies as a kid. Part of it is that Monster Apocalypse, the new miniatures game version, it's not collectible. It's a hobby miniatures game that used to exist 10 years ago as a collectible miniatures game. Originally, it attracted me because I didn't have to paint the models. The reason why I need to play this game is that if I don't bring it to the store and I don't show that someone's playing it, then no one will play it. Yep, absolutely. Uh, we've seen that time and time again. As passionate as people are about their game, they will come to the store and they'll say, why doesn't anybody else play this game? And our question is, well, when's the last time you brought it to the table? And they said, well, we're waiting for people to play it. There has to be a vanguard. There has to be the person that's leading the charge. And that's one of the, the best things about uh, your passion from our point of view is that you're here, you're consistent, you've got amazing skills. And then I've never seen you turn somebody away when they asked a question. So David, what brings a professional of your caliber to a game store to pretend that you're punching gods in the face? What is it about Dresden that brings you there? It was a session that I attended that you had on a Saturday that I signed up for, and it was all for new DMs at when I discovered this store. I attended it because I used to play Vampire the Masquerade. I had 14-year hiatus because of going through five degrees. And I, when I got back to gaming, I just remembered loving the stories that you could tell. The problem was, is I haven't done it in so long. I wanted to get my feet just a little bit wet by, by dipping my toe in the water. And I attended one of your sessions and you told a story about rancid meat. That's a, oh, yeah. a weird thing. Um, but how you made your, your sessions a little more visceral. And when I heard that, and I, when you're talking about consequences, I'm like, that is something I can get behind. But then I played Pathfinder. Now, Pathfinder is a wonderful game. This is, this is not a criticism, but Pathfinder has a very strict set of rules, and that's just not where I wanted to go with my role-playing. So then I, I accidentally wandered upon Dresden, which is a fandom that I adore. I adore the books. I love everything about it. James Marsters, who is Spike from Buffy, is the audio narrator for that series. And just, I fell in love with it um, over time. And when I saw that, and I saw how loose and narrative the game was, I'm like, this is where I can make consequences mean something. And there are people who, who had something happen in the first session of my first game who was dealing with it a year later for the consequences. And that's something that came out of a discussion in a forum, in a D&D um, session that I attended for you. That's cool. Okay. <laughs> I, I do remember that session uh, vividly. Do you find that the players that have rallied around your first Dresden file game are still with you today? All of them except for one. And the only reason she's not, she went to nursing school. And, it, you know, that, that's something you encourage. But every single one of them are still playing in either the Friday session or I had to split it up because it was originally an eight person campaign split up in two fours that went up to six and then got a third campaign. Yeah. If anyone's playing a fate system, we automatically assume they're part of David's Dresden file crew of God punching hooligans. <laughs> we do buy all your dice. I'm just saying. <laughs> there we go. All right. Another interesting figure when it comes to community building is Gus and his passion for Guild Ball. How's that going for you? 
So I, I appreciate the uh, the praise, but I honestly have to give the community building uh, credit to a lot of other people that aren't me. I, I don't take to it naturally. What I uh, have stuck to is uh, persistence with the game. Uh, as I've played since the first season, which is roughly five years ago, uh, we're in the fourth season now. Honestly, it's it, because the, uh, the rule set of the game stuck with me in a way that um, no other game really has. If I'm speaking to the community that plays the game, the people who play Guild Ball play it because they love the game of Guild Ball. Sort of secondarily, uh, the setting and the characters. Um, most of the people that you would see at a night playing Guild Ball wouldn't know the names of all of their players, but maybe don't know their backstories or what fictional country they're from, etc. It's something that I care about personally because it's my favorite game, but I don't think that I would have come to it from the other direction like uh, David did with Dresden, where he was a fan of Dresden and became a fan of the game. I was definitely a fan of the game and thus became uh, a fan of these stories. The reason that I love Guild Ball as much as I do and the reason I've stuck to it is the the way that the rules are structured uh, are very chess-like uh, with a component of randomness that keeps every game fresh, in my opinion. Uh, the reason I stopped playing chess uh, was sort of the disillusionment as a child of just being told that in a mystical future, we will have computers that will be able to play chess better than any human will ever be able to play it because there are a finite number of board states and moves in chess by the nature of the game. And that sort of turned me off of it. And when I found out that the math on shuffling a 52-card poker deck, uh, the probability is that every time you shuffle it, of all time in history, you are shuffling it to a new deck of cards that has never existed because it's 52 factorial, which is 52 times 51 times 50, et cetera, et cetera, times 321. That number comes out to be so astronomical that it's it's... I, I don't even know how many digits are in it. It's it's an absurdly huge number. And so I was sort of enchanted by this idea of randomness and trying to predict it and trying to come up with betting on an outside straight. So, you know, so bad ideas in poker. But, you know, sometimes you got to risk it for the biscuit, as we say. And uh, that idea of chess, but with measured risks uh, is what attracted me to Go Ball because I'm not even a sports fan. But for some reason... Uh, a bunch of trade unionists in uh, the medieval times of a, a false Europe. It could be any setting in the rules that it's in. I, I would probably fall in love with it. Well, and at least to validate young Gus, the computers have moved on to Go. Right. Yeah, so, no, that's, that, is, that is absolutely true. Uh, go is way more complicated than chess. Um, but, you know, and, and recently watched a, a short uh, documentary just about probability and gaming. And it's pretty much universally agreed on now that Magic is the most complicated game that has ever been designed just by the longevity of it. When you have a 30 year old game with, you know, 20,000 elements, et cetera, et cetera. If you look at it holistically, it's the most complicated game, but something I've encountered is if there's too much randomness and it sort of gets out of hand, that's not as attractive to me. So a lot of war games such as 40 K might be a little more random than I like. I'd like to hear from Porik as well. You're very much a Renaissance gamer, but uh, the first game that you introduced me to when we got married and the game that we played for years without playing any other games was Magic the Gathering. So I would definitely call you a card gamer, not exclusively, but that was your your love. It's the game you grew up playing. So why Magic over other games? I found that Magic was a mixture of a lot of the same elements that our panel has discussed. Uh, one, there's a story behind it. There are characters. There's fluff there's personalities and relationships that the game explores, but that's very secondary to the mechanics of Magic the Gathering, which is based heavily in probability, chances, reliability, repeatability, and a lot of factors that you can manage by constructing your deck in a certain way that certain effects are consistent and effective against the 
the field, the, the metagame, as we call it. But I found that there was also many, many other factors of Magic the Gathering that kept me coming back to it. And Magic is one of those interesting games where the flavor of cards that you use to generate your deck are supposed to be reflective of kind of an overall life philosophy. And I love the idea of taking the philosophy of a very aggressive, passionate, emotional, red magic, and then mixing it with its counterpart of a very cool, metaphysical, manipulative blue magic. And you stick those two colors together and you have a third philosophy that is bought out. And the game does a really great job with its artwork and its mechanics and the strategy of that deck to project basically uh, philosophical battles that you know are resolved by lightning bolts and water blasts and creatures and whatnot. And I, I really got into the idea that uh, it's a philosophical battle of how we approach obstacles and we use tools to overcome those obstacles. So I kind of went off the deep end with the academic uh, flavor of it. Uh, I have to admit the thing that probably turned me off about the game was the community that formed around it and the because it's very competitive, you know, some ugly energies come to the table and it became a, a bit of a headache to deal with those energies, even though the game itself is, I think, a stellar game. So with that said, actually, I actually want to bounce that right off of the panel is what's the negative, the most negative thing about the game that you love? What would you change if you could change it? I think that um, in a game like Guild Ball, you have a single objective, uh, which is put the ball in the net or beat people to death. A problem with a game that I appreciate but hear a lot of complaints about is that not that every game ends up playing out the same way, but that some more variance in the objective uh, might be appreciated. And that comes into play with a deck of cards that it, you use for initiative in the game. And I think that that's a fantastic way to spice it up. And Steamforge Games is releasing an expansion to that mechanic later this month. So fortunately, the one thing that I'm feeling stagnant about is this card drafting mechanic at the beginning of the game is being answered by the company later this month. And honestly, the only other complaint as a decidedly competitive gamer, because I should say that out loud. That no, I, <laughs> really? I, uh, I have a bit of a reputation for... Uh, uh, and But but what I, I do say every time it comes up that I am a competitive person, it's not about the winning for me. It's about making a measured decision that I observe to be correct. And if I take a bad beat from luck, well, I, I gambled and lost. Um, what I always try to do is every time I observe a game state, I try to puzzle out, and this is what I love about games in every game, is walking up to a situation and deciding what would be the outcome we're looking for. And and that's where why I fall in love with Kill Ball is because it is predictable and tangible enough to kind of set yourself up for success. Like I said, if we were to change anything in the game, it would maybe uh, just a fresh coat of paint on a couple of the mechanics. But that I think a lot of people complain about the predictability of the very beginning of the game is what people complain. So I think that for Monster Apocalypse, there's a lot of parallels there to Guild Ball. The, the objective of the game is just to have the last monster standing. So you can have either one, two or three monsters. All you have to do is just beat the other guy up. That has a finite level of strategy, tactics, uh, possibilities that, that can come to it. Obviously, any time that you vary the units, the buildings, the monsters that are involved in the, the city, the battle that you're waging, anytime you involve, even with the exact same models on the board, then now you're playing against that other person's brain. They're not going to use the same pieces the same way. And so there's variability there. But 
the objective still only being just be the last one standing, just beat the other monster up. It does feel a little dated, I think, compared to some other newer skirmish games and games on the market now that have varied objectives that have multiple ways to either win or approach a situation. Now, there's tons of ways to approach any given situation with Monster Apocalypse, but in the end, you're still kind of racing damage against somebody else. And then the other sort of metagame problem that I, I wish I could solve is uh, I just want everybody to play it. But that, that's <laughs> that I, that sounds that sounds kind of simple, but there, there are a lot of real world factors that go into we live in a, a capitalistic society. We've got to deal with the reality of people have limited amounts of time and money to put into things. And then the companies making them have limited amounts of time and money. Um, the the company making Monster Apocalypse is Privateer Press. People know them for War Machine and Hordes. They've been around a while, but they are still not Games Workshop. And they don't have that level of pull with people with like just the, the cultural awareness of, of their products. Have you ever uh, searched to see if there's any other formats that you can play the game, like multiplayer or uh, three monster versus three monster and no units, something to mix it up a little? Yeah, people are trying to come up with stuff. The game is pretty new. I mean, it's only been out since what October of 2018. So we're dealing with just barely over a year now. And the thing is that the, the variability that comes from adding new stuff to the game that is being supplemented by the company, by mm -hmm. them constantly releasing something new every month. And so there are new things being added to the game, even without the uh, addition of different kinds of ways to play it. But that's also somewhat on the radar, but they've got a, a limited number of designers and those designers are working on multiple projects. So and products, right? Mm -hmm. And so when something like that will come out officially, I don't know. As far as homebrew, yeah, there's plenty of that stuff around. Yeah. Please come play Monster Apocalypse with John. <laughs> <laughs> Thursday nights right. at Nightwatch Games. There you go. And also, uh, I believe you're starting to do some demos on the weekends now to try to yeah uh, bring it in those seems people like that can't do a weeknight. It's not. It's not particularly surprising for me to say that there are more people in the store on a weekend. So, <laughs> yeah, as it would happen. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, David. Yes. Um, two things. Um, and unfortunately, I don't think there's any way to fix them, but I'll explain kind of the limitations. The first one is on the scale of role play, R O L L, and role play, R O L E, it's heavy on the narrative side. And so, some of these sessions turn into entire exercises in improvisation. It's wonderful if you, you uh, have people who love that type type of thing. But what D&D does really, really well is it has rules for everything. So sometimes you don't have to come up with something. You just check your character sheet. It's why it's lasted so long. It's such a robust system. It's, you know, D&D is the daddy of all of these things. But um, for Dresden, you lose that because you're, it's designed specifically to try and get everybody to be unique. You throw out aspects as you go. Literally, there's if you if you played it the way it was intended, you walk into a room, you say there's a person over there, and you look at your player and say, what's that person's name? It really is wide on on the improvisational. The second part is is, is every rolling playing every role playing game is reliant on the people who are in the room, and sometimes they mesh and sometimes they don't. I think I lucked into a good group of people that expanded into uh, another group, good group of people that expanded into a, a, just a bunch of people I enjoy playing with it. But that's not everybody's experience. I think I think I was lucky into that, and that's the thing you can't change. You gotta you gotta solicit and experiment and try to get as many people as possible to have the passion so that you can find the right 
group of people to play with. And you also have to have the willingness to call that herd if you have to. Um, but that's with every role-playing game. I can't claim that as a unique thing. And that's something you'll never fix. Before we move on too far from Monster Apocalypse and Dresden and Guild Ball, uh, we do have general casual play nights for two of those communities. Thursday night is Monpok, and as we said earlier, uh, Josh is starting to do some weekend demos to try to get more people playing the game. And we have a lot of organized play for Guild Ball because it is so popular here. Gus was dancing the jig when yeah, she said he that. He just did. Yeah, you didn't see Gus, but he just did a total rock star move it just then. birthday. <laughs> so Tuesday night, and then also, we, that's casual play, and then we also have a monthly tournament, uh, competitive play, on the fourth Saturday of every month. And you can pretty much see Guild Ball getting played every day here if you come by because... So many of us play. I can't take any credit whatsoever for organizing the community, though I will take credit for, you know, being a, a ever vigilant vanguard that refuses to retire. But yes, yeah, so, so when I walked in one day and there was Gilball being played and it had nothing to do with me, I, I, I almost cried. It was beautiful. A beautiful sight. Okay, so before we get too far off topic and we want to get back to why we play the specific games that we play, uh, don't want to leave out board games. Uh, it happens to be my favorite game to play. And I know everybody here at the table also are board gamers. I see you all playing board games. Uh, David Lauber actually taught me how to play one of my favorites, Hive, and uh, persisted to kick my butt at it. But fortunately, I'm not the kind of girl that uh, takes losses and just goes, I don't want to play that anymore. So now I am the master and I teach people and I kick their butts. Absolutely. Um, so what do we love about board games? Uh, one of the things that Josh hit on earlier was the retro appeal of board games. Uh, we can all remember playing Monopoly or um, shoots and Ladders with our brothers and sisters or parents or whoever. And so now we're all sitting at a table again, but we're with friends and we're in a cool place. So there's that retro appeal. Um, for me, though, variety is the big one. Uh, while I love a good Guild Ball game or a mom pot game or a good role playing game, I want to be able to play what I want, when I want, where I want. And most often that means a single game of something to be followed by a single game of something else. So you don't have a particular one favorite. Um, oh, I, again, I thought yours was going to be Illimat, honestly. Really? Yeah, because I've played that literally every time I walk in. That's the one we play. I think I go through phases. I get uh -huh. so excited when I learn a new game right. that I like and mm -hmm. I want to share. So you're going to see me teaching Illimat over and over and over. Absolutely. And then you're going to see me teaching Dice Throne or Grim Forest or Shobu right. or any of the other, Onitama, some of our favorite games. Sorry. Such a I got good really one. excited about Onitama. And, and then it kind of feeds in on itself too, right? Then they see you playing Illimat or they see you playing Dice Throne and they say, someone new walks up and says, hey, what is that? Mm -hmm. And then now you've got another demo queued up behind that one. Right. It's much easier to build a board game community than right. it is a role-playing game right. or Monpok or Guild Ball. You're telling me. Because you're offering <laughs> variety. Right. And then also, I happen to think I'm a pretty decent teacher of board games. And so I like to say, you know, I, I'm going to teach you this game quickly, concisely. It's not just board games. We're trying to peg down the specific board game. Really? So if you're going to talk about Dice Throne. What is it about Dice Throne that brings you to the table? All right. So Dice Throne. I definitely prefer competitive games to co-op games because I like to show off how good I am at them. It just really comes down to ego. I'm not ashamed to say that. Another thing I like about Dice Throne is it's got a feel to it that is like Magic the Gathering uh, with dice. It's sort of combat Yahtzee meets Magic the Gathering. 
And Magic the Gathering was the first game I would say I truly got into. So there's that appeal to it. One of the things that makes me really love the game are the people who made it. Uh, Nate Chandelier and Manny Tremblay are two of the coolest, nicest, brilliant, creative, interesting people I have ever met. And uh, you're lucky I'm married to Port. No, just kidding. <laughs> right? <laughs> just kidding. She just name dropped and said, I want my hall it's, pass. I've got my game crush on right. Manny and Nate. Um, uh, but anyway, and their passion for the game is contagious. And so I, I just got hooked. So I think it's just excellent radio to talk about how things look. I've played quite a bit of Dice Around myself, and i got to say, it's one of the best-looking games on the market. Oh, I yeah. love their art direction. is so like singular and purposeful. Right. and just has this really great aesthetic to it, and I really, I, I just love all of the art associated with it. And, and like I, magic. Oh, Sorry, David. I was going to say, I'm a Diceophile, and that's what does it for me. I, I love Dice. I, I have a, like, you know, just boxes and boxes of Dice in that game. Like, I would buy that game to use the dice someplace else. Mm -hmm. yeah. It's how ridiculously Very good nice looking that game is. Well, that is a common element among the four or five of us outside of Magic um, is that we all use dice in our game. And some of the games use them uh, strictly or it's a, an essential element to what happens in the game. I'm thinking of Guild Ball here where the probabilities of a win D6 coming up to a certain number really dictates your options for that turn. And then you have control of how many 1D6s are brought to that puzzle. And I think that's an awesome piece of the game. But then you go to the other side of the spectrum and you have the fate role-playing system where it's almost just a guideline. Right. Would you agree with that? Yeah. Well, you always roll the same amount of dice. It's four. Okay. And there's plus, minus, and blanks. And statistically, it's a wash. So the dice is a lot less impactful but it's really fun to see some of the ways that people get creative because there are ways to up your your roles and modify the roles and change the universe i've even had a game where someone used a fate from outside the game came in guest speak for about a minute and walked away you interpret the dice roll and you get to sort of uh, generate what that dice roll means as far as the story as contrasted with guild ball it really just gives you a, a choice Technically, not very open. So there's this, the scale I talked about, a negative two to an eight. Well, they they have a word associated with it, like fair, good, or bad, or something like that. You literally have to tell it what is a fair result for that. And okay. so you take the circumstance for what's going on, and you say, this is pretty decent, this is fair, or legendary, which is an eight, by the way. So a legendary result is punching Loki in the head. Would you say Mompak is in the middle of that? I'm not really sure. The, so one of the interesting things about Monster Apocalypse is that the dice that you use are action dice. They shift between letting your monster be the focus of any given turn or letting your units be the focus of any given turn. You can spend dice as a currency. You can also roll dice in an attack in order to try and hit a target number defense. So you create a dice pool. You roll the dice against that dice pool and see, can I get an eight? with you know this set number of dice and yeah you can boil those dice down to a you know one to 100 probability but at the same time dice even if something with fate like you were discussing that it was kind of a wash even if it's a wash and you know if i roll these dice two thousand times eventually i'm going to end up with an even distribution it doesn't matter because it's dice are so dramatic you're shaking them up in your hand and you don't know what it's going to be when it comes out you 
let it hit the table, and then everybody peers over the edge of the table to look at it and say, what's it going to be this time? Shared experience of discovery. Yeah. If I could just comment on that feeling. Yes. Uh, Something that people have commented that I do is if my opponent's rolling in a dice tray, I will, I think, excitedly lean over the table and want to see what what the result is uh, in, in the dice tray. I've had multiple people comment that they think that I think that they're cheating. And no, I want to see what you opened on Christmas Day. Like, that's exciting. Like, the dice roll, <laughs> right. it's slaughtered. Right. Like, that's why we do this, is it's exciting to right. see what the, what the dice gods have given us. And in both those games, do the dice stay where they lay? So, is there any modification to the dice? Yes and no. Not In, in Guild Ball, you generate a pool of dice, and then you roll them, and then you're looking for a specific number. I, I haven't said, but in Guild Ball, it's just plain D6s, which... You know, some of us like vanilla, uh, but uh, it's just it's just a number of uh, good old cubes with one to six on them, All right? Which you know I think is more crunchy than boring, but yeah. yeah. And in mom pocket, shifting dice, but can you change the surface? Uh, not really, no. So you've got three different kinds of dice. Each one of them has a uh, effectively a two on it, uh, and a varying number of ones. The one thing that I do like about the game is that there is always a chance to miss no matter how strategically perfect and tight your plan is. It can always go awry and then you're left with the puzzle solving element of, well, now what do I do with what I have? So I'm going to bring it back to Dice Throne for just a second. In this game, you have five dice. You roll during your offensive roll, your attack roll, and you get to choose to re-roll up to two times to try to create this perfect storm of either icons or numbers to trigger one of your offensive abilities. So there is a randomness, yes, but then once they lay there, you can try again. That is really appealing because I might roll a second time because I'm still going for this certain attack that I wanted to make, but I can see even by the second roll that it's not going to get to what I want to get. So now I can change my mind and I can focus on a different attack with the dice that I did have. It's one of the things that really appeals to me about that game. So that that reminds me of uh, one of my favorite elements of uh, Guild Ball. Um, Pork and I were actually playing a game last night uh, where this situation came up where I had a a grand strategy of how I was going to go all the way from my deployment all the way to his deployment, bobbing and weaving and and juking around the table with uh, my captain uh, of the team, Blackheart, the evil pirate. Right in the middle of my grand scheme, I missed a pass. So you roll dice to see if, if you pass a ball successfully or not. And so I had a trick to make somebody else pass to me, and that was going to be part of the team working together so I could score this goal. But when I missed that kick, it, you know, Christmas is canceled. There's no, you know, I was, <laughs> my, my dreams are crushed. Uh, because of the nature of the game where you have a certain number of action points that you've planned out for the turn, even though my dream is, is, is crushed in, on, for that plan, I was able to pivot around and actually score a takeout in the same activation instead of scoring a goal. So being able to pivot your strategy in the middle of the game and even in the middle of an activation or even in the middle of, of a planning step uh, is absolutely my favorite part about the game. Um, every time you roll dice, there is a decision and that decision is always meaningful. So for your listeners, let me give you the narrative of what that scene looked like in my mind. So you have this pirate and he's a pretty angry kind of guy uh, and he's got the soccer ball and he's way over on the far side of the field. And he starts dribbling down the field, and in order to increase his speed, he starts punching people as he's running past them. And then he kicks the ball to his teammates so that he is free to run even faster, 
with the expectation that his teammate is going to pass the ball right back to him. You see it in soccer all the time. And for the uh, uh, listeners at home, the ability is called on my mark, which is, is very fluffy because you can imagine a captain running down the field with his finger raised, giving the signal to one of his squaddies and pass to me now. Now, right. The squaddy misses the pass. And so Blackheart the pirate stops his run turns to the nearest opponents next to him and just pummels them to the ground. <laughs> That's what he does. He's like, screw the soccer game. I'm just going to beat somebody up right now. Screaming sure arg all the way. Arg! Yeah. Right. That sounds really stressful to me. I don't know about y'all, but there's an immersion, of course, mm-hmm. in games. And I like to play games to escape my reality, which is very stressful. Right, game store owner, married to pork, very stressful. Right. And so <laughs> right. I like to escape that. So board games do that for me, right? right. They, they, I'm calm, uh, competitive, yet controlled. That sounds very stressful. I mean, I know Porik's ears get red when he's playing Gilball, and his little watch tells him to breathe and that his <laughs> blood pressure's too high. So what do you love about games that stress you out like that? So can I jump in just a little bit? Absolutely. Because he actually, uh, I'm pointing to Josh, by the way. Uh, uh, he hit it the nail on the head when he described the visceral reaction to rolling dice. To me, it is like uh, you're literally looking at fate, pun intended, uh, happening before you. And it is a thing of beauty. Like when you described it, uh, Gus, by the way, um, <laughs> described it as a Christmas present. That's how I look at it. I don't see it as stress. I see it as just a bunch of possibilities unfolding in front of me. And so um, even though I can see the stress coming from it, if you come at it from the fluff or you come at it from the area of that this is a new potential outcome, it becomes just a, a story being told no matter what type of game you're being played. And I um, explain this a lot and not to get too dark, but uh, uh, life is complicated and there are a lot of variables and I've made some bad decisions and I wish that things had gone differently than they did sometimes in my life. I don't know if anyone else can relate, but I look at games and uh, while there are a lot of variables in games and a lot of dice and it's very random and you never know and you know it may be stressful, that uncertainty, not knowing what's going into it, games have a very finite number of variables compared to real life <laughs> and uh, I find getting excited over a, a false threat, say maybe a horror movie or a haunted house mm-hmm. or something like that, gives me comfort in that I am able to confront this uncertainty and fear mm-hmm. without real repercussions. And it kind of gives me a sense of security uh, knowing that I can predict these variables and and mm-hmm. especially a game, like I've said with Gilball, that is very rewarding uh, of these, this kind of planning uh, to see things, they could go badly. Oh, they went right. well. Okay. Excel. And, and you, you have know? to have a safe word. Yeah, exactly. Right. Right. exactly. Mine oh. is cut. <laughs> cut. And like the way y'all have described it last episode was that you have a uh, a compartmentalized kind of um, situation where the the stakes matter in the game, and despite the fact that it might be stressful in the game, um, you're trying to work your way towards whatever that goal might be. Um, it, the thing is that at the end of the day, you get to walk away from the game, and, and everybody gets to breathe afterward and say, "Whew." That was pretty wild, right? Yeah. And then you get to commiserate afterwards, talk about the game, uh-huh. and and the things that happened in that game they mattered then, and then you still can shake hands with or you know share a beer with somebody afterwards. One of my favorite things to see is when we're leaving at the end of the night at midnight when we close, 
the conversations will go on for hours in the parking lot. Yeah, guilty. Confirmed. Absolutely, hundred yeah. <laughs> percent. Yeah, I think that just happened last night. Literally right. last. Well, we were in. It was cold, so we were right. indoors. But yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And and because we're, uh, I'm coming from the RP side. My goal in life is to make them scream, "Oh crap!" Because I cut at a dramatic point that they don't want <laughs> yeah. me to. Commercial break, cliffhanger. Um, exactly. If I could jump in on that real quick yeah. too, though. There is something to be said for the comparison to expectations, making sure that everybody's on the same page before you sit down to a game. That's one of the things that I like about Monster Apocalypse mm. is the rule set is pretty rigorous. And so I have to do less of making sure, hey, are you okay with this? Are you okay with mm. that? What are your limits? Here are my limits. These are the things that we're about to sit down to. It's a little bit more structured and codified in a game like Monster Apocalypse. Mm. And that's one thing that I do like about that. And I, I would have to comment that I... Uh that is a lesson that I have learned through a lot of failure um, is managing expectations for, for what you're looking for in a game uh, is extremely important for everyone participating. And uh, um, I'm going to say, I don't really, uh, I don't know how to turn it off. Like I said, when I, when you, right. when, you when I see uh, what the correct plan is to do, I, I feel like it would be condescending if even say I'm playing against a newer player to me boiling it back down to chess. If I have, checkmate in two and I don't do checkmate in two on purpose, well then that seems disrespectful to me. Um, though I understand that obviously perspectives are different and, and expectations are, are, are a very messy variable, but that is essentially what, what the story I was joking about earlier about uh, killing a community, I think was because uh, mismanaged expectations of everyone participating. And so nowadays, uh, whenever I play Gilball, I do try to, I mean, unless it's one of my like, you know, competitive testing buddies, et cetera. Or like even last night, Pork and I had like a, a, a focus for trying out new things is, is well, why we were playing. Um, I, but I do try to set those expectations out loud just so that, uh, just so everybody knows I'm pretty good right. at this game and I'm sorry. <laughs> Gus comes with instructions. He has stop. a card that he has to hand yeah, to everybody like, before yeah, he plays. Sign this waiver, please. I don't right. Disclaimer. I don't yeah. I remember when you and I first started playing X-Wing and I think I won like the first 10 games that we played. And you were so frustrated and you you didn't want to play the game anymore. And we would circle back to Magic or some other game. But then we would come back to X-Wing. And then we discovered that you could watch ad nauseum games of X-Wing being played on YouTube. And so Porik took the initiative to study and watch. So he did his due diligence and he learned in depth how to play this game and how to play all the different factions and eventually just totally would kick my butt every single time. And that's when I lost interest. Yeah, Josh. Right. <laughs> now, I, I do kind of have a little bit of a follow-on question to that, which is, is that still playing the game? Is at that point when Pork is doing the research and he's watching YouTube videos, he's not doesn't have an opponent sitting across the table from him, is that still playing the game? Because in the case of uh, hobby miniatures games, um, sitting down to assemble the models, paint the models, uh, make a list, think about how to play the game. All of that is part of it. Even though I only come to Nightwatch to play once mm -hmm. a week, I'm moderator on Reddit for the Monster Apocalypse subreddit. I also am very active in Discord. I'm thinking about the game constantly. Even when I'm not playing it, I'm involved with it. That's yeah, the game experience yeah. is what it is. And it's a complete experience. People think that it, you know, starts and stops at the table, which is not true. Well, especially yeah. for role-playing games, right. you've got a lot of prep work you have right. to do if you're trying to run it. And even if you're being a conscientious player, you have a lot of work right. you have to do to keep up your end of that social contract and say, yeah, 
I've put just as much effort into my character as you've put into your world. Right. I think that's a great statement. But I always picture Gus as, you you see that trope in movies where there's like math flying by someone's head? (laughs) That's Gus playing games. It's the effort and fun it takes to become good at it. See, this is interesting because Porg asked me that a lot, especially when we get into a new game. He'll have this random question about the game. And I'm like, that was left field. And he says, no, I'm thinking about the game constantly and right. I don't necessarily want to. Now, I am a gamer. I'm a game store right. owner. I'm a gamer. I've been playing games for a long time now, but I don't want to think about the game 24-7. Maybe that's why I really prefer board games over everything else because it does or it can. It doesn't maybe for everybody. For, right. for me, it can start and stop at the table. Well, And, and, and the experience is, is literally compartmentalized, right? Like, I mean, it being a board game is usually means it's in a box and then you pack everything in the box and it's a nice bookend to the experience. Uh, whereas I think ministry gamers can all agree that, you know, it's a whole culture where you got to have a cool bag to put your stuff in and foam right. trays to make Blame. sure your beautiful paint jobs right. don't get messed up. And then you got your lucky dice and you're not so lucky, di- you know, and you get, it, it becomes this whole, uh, more of a lifestyle than uh, a hobby, you know, I think. And I, right. I think that, you know, Deborah Strokes, right? I, right. I, I agree. Maybe. I think also too, that it might have something to do with just personality, the way that my brain ticks. I, you're talking about board games. You stop playing them when you close the box. I don't either there. Um, you know, I'm obviously not every game can stand up to this level of uh, analysis or criticism or strategy, but I'd played Spirit Island with a friend and we failed horribly and I couldn't stop thinking about like, oh, what could I have done differently? Like right. maybe I should use a different spirit. Like, well, maybe next time when I get around to it, then I'll try using more right. minor powers instead or something like that. My personality. I think all those same things right after I play. And then I shut that box and I <laughs> right. move on to the next project. I envy you. You know, yeah, when I open too. up that Spirit Island box again, by the way, great game, I remember, okay, last time mm-hmm. I did this and now I'm going to try mm-hmm. something different. Right. So I do all that. It's just a little more compressed, I think. I, I think you also play for a different reason. I have the escapism as well, but I don't want to come back to reality as so sharp as you do. I, it's just like pulling a ripcord in your case. For me, it's a slow, gradual, um, you know, ascent. And the reason that is, is because I enjoy standing around for, again, like we talked about, the hour and having that reliving, that experience, that drama, just as much as the game itself. My goal as a GM is that people run out and tell stories because that's the whole point is we sit here in a room and tell a story for six hours. Yeah. And then they go out and tell stories for all the time. And I got to tell you, Illumat, I am guilty of definitely thinking way too hard about a card game about uh, autumn and winter and summer. I'm serious as a heart attack. I literally study uh, Gilball and a lot of other games I play academically. Like mm-hmm. I, I consider it like studying it as if I'm, I'm right. trying to pass a test. Professor Gus. I just, I just think that the test yeah. is every tournament game that I play. Right. But I think most importantly that mm-hmm. you learn from your failures mm-hmm. more than you do from success. I mean, maybe you have a new strategy and you want to try it out. And if it works, that's good intel. But learning from failure is the, the strongest skill that I, I have honed in, in mm-hmm. my life, I think. Um, and especially applying it to being competitive at games. Right. One of the things that I think is, is interesting here is that we, we're definitely coming to the table with our independent, unique agendas, but there is some common ground. Uh, one of the common grounds that I like exploring is the storytelling that can come from what happened on the table, whether it be a tactical choice, the angry pirate running down the pitch trying to score. Uh, there's a story there 
And then there's the story about the interactions of the players and the players. And I think it's just building a common experience of us as gamers from all walks of life with a very interesting common ground. I, I do want to segue off the idea of stories and something that David said earlier that brought him back into the fold of gaming. And that was during our DMs class, what it was that I was doing with my role players to keep them immersed and to get that visceral reaction from them. And what I was doing was taking real world sensations and putting them into the scenario so that the players themselves were feeling something that I wanted the characters to be feeling. The scene was that the characters were going down into a crypt and I wanted them to really be scared of what was in the crypt, but these players were somewhat experienced. They were veterans. They knew that there was going to be some kind of shambling undead thing down there and they were not affected whatsoever. They, they, they were laughing. Yeah, they, they didn't take it very seriously, but you know, shambling undead should be horrific. So... What I had done ahead of time was I had taken some meat and put it in a plastic bag and let it sit out in the Texas sun for about a week. And the bag was bloated with just noxious, decaying gases and whatnot. And I had this bag underneath the table, and when the players got confronted with the shambling <laughs> zombie, <laughs> they, oh, no. they just said, yeah. oh, a shambling zombie, I, I go attack it. And I said, well, let me finished describing what's happening here. And I described the smell of the rotting corpse that's lurching towards them and the flesh dripping off of its arm and all this kind of stuff. And he said, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's only got two hit points or it's only got two hit dice. I can attack it. So I swing at it. And I said, well, it's really disgusting. You're gagging. And like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I attack it. And they were just dismissing the whole description. I said, all right, pulling out the big guns. So I reached under the table and I opened this bag and I let the room just fill with this noxious smell of rotting meat. And they were really upset. And they said, what do we have to do to make you close that bag? I said, well, you could run away from the zombie. And that's exactly what they did. You had these <laughs> bona fide adventures running away from a zombie because of the smell. And so I capitalized on that by having a bard in town doing the Robin the Minstrel right. runaway right. song. Right. <laughs> Run away. Run away. I can't replicate that in <laughs> no, your store. Okay, no. So I translated that into vivid descriptions and yeah. trying to use the music and the, the lighting in these rooms. That lesson has stuck with me almost two and a half years later. Yeah, well, it's stuck uh, with them too. <laughs> right, and you described opening... It's stuck in the room for right. about a week. You described opening a door in the middle of the winter as well to create that more immersive experience. Yeah. And so I, I can't tell you how much that... I mean, it's stuck in my brain and has affected games to this day. All right. So uh, on behalf of Nightwatch Games, I'd really like to thank Josh, David, and Gus for visiting the studio here. If you ever find time to come by the store, you will find at least two out of the three here playing games, and they would love to have you at their table regardless of what it is. This is Pork and Brenda from Nightwatch Games signing off for Season 1, Episode 2 of Why Do We Play the Games We Do. Adventure awaits. Adventure awaits.